title, never heard of it before, I'm pretty sure, The Great Commission, right? It's new to you, I'm sure. A little sarcasm. Uh, this is message 114. I've uh, been in Matthew for over two years. Well, Lord willing, finish out this morning. Uh, I hope to get into Romans. Uh, you know, I haven't been in Romans uh, since the year 2000, so it's, it's overdue. It's overdue as far as doing Romans. So uh, looking forward to uh, going through Romans verse by verse uh, after we get done with Matthew here this morning. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Help me to teach accurately and clearly. May the Holy Spirit have his way in our hearts. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, you note the overhead there. Uh, as far as the outline of the book, the theme is Christ the King, and we've worked our way down to the last section here in chapter 28. We now come to the finale, if you will, of the book of Matthew. Ends on an exceedingly high point. Uh, Matthew wrote to Jews to convince them that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the true Messiah, the prophesied Messiah who would come to both deliver and rule over his people. The book of Matthew builds to the climactic point of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if we, as we have noted, 27, the crucifixion, chapter 28, uh, the resurrection. And upon the resurrection of Jesus, his enemies immediately went about to try and snuff out the truth of it. I mean, this cannot get out. If it does, it's going to really mess with us as far as our position. And so these religious leaders, they were desperate to try and snuff out the truth. Well, in contrast to this, we have the proactive, if you will, great commission of Jesus given to his people, which is to further the truth throughout the entire world. What ensued after the resurrection was a, in effect, truth war over the truth of Jesus. And this is a battle for the mind. Uh, you know, the issue, the great issue of life is the mind. Uh, what you think affects how you live. Satan, through his people, is doing everything he can to suppress the truth of God. While God, through his people, is advancing the truth. That's what we are. We're truth warriors, right? And this is a truth center, equipping you with the truth so you can go out and share the truth with people. God, through his people, is advancing the truth. And this is what the Great Commission, given here at the very end of Matthew, is all about. MacArthur makes this statement, If a Christian understands all the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, but fails to understand this closing passage, he has missed the point of the entire book. This passage is the climax and major focal point, not only of this gospel, but of the entire New Testament. It is not an exaggeration to say that in its broadest sense, it is the focal point of all Scripture, Old Testament as well as New. Well, with that background, let's get into it. We pick it up, Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Now, prior to his death, Christ had told his disciples that after his resurrection, he would meet them in Galilee, Matthew 26 and verse 32. After his resurrection, the angel at the tomb told the women to go and tell Christ's disciples that he would meet them in Galilee. And then after Christ met the women on, uh, as they were running from the tomb on resurrection morning, he also told them, to go and tell his brethren that he would meet them in Galilee. There's a very important meeting going to happen in Galilee. It's continually emphasized here. 
So this meeting in Galilee has consistently been announced as being really an all-important post-resurrection meeting. It was like announcing that this is an all-important meeting with the importance of being there, uh, which could not be underestimated. I mean, if Christ, uh, uh, either directly himself or through his angel three times says, meet me in Galilee, you can assume it's a very important meeting. Christ's followers were, in effect, instructed to be there where important instructions as to where do we go from here would be made known. Well, now the 12 disciples, which were the 12 disciples, is now said to be 11. We lost somebody, right? Yeah, Judas, the betrayer, uh, the traitor, committed suicide. So there's only 11 now. These 11 went away to Galilee as instructed to a mountain which Jesus had appointed. Now, we are not told which mountain this was. You could guess all day and probably be wrong. Uh, Some of Jesus' most important teaching was done in relationship to a mountain. I mean, we have the Sermon on the Mount, right? You know where that's at, Matthew 5 through 7. I'm one of the most important teachings of Christ, teaching on the mount, as we commonly call it. Jesus' revelation on the Mount of Transfiguration. That was a pretty important revelation. And then, of course, the Olivet Discourse, which was given on the Mount of Olives. The foot of a mountain really makes for a a good forum when addressing a crowd, right? I mean, good, you know, acoustics as far as the foot of a mountain. But we are not sure which specific mountain is in view here. Now, most commentators believe that while the 11 led the delegation, it would seem that many more were probably involved in this meeting. It is thought that telling the brethren, quote, plural, brethren, of this meeting in chapter 28, verse 10, involve probably more than just the apostles. It's hard to believe the women who were charged with telling the brethren to meet him in Galilee, uh, it's hard to believe that being aware of this information, they would say, well, we'll just wait here. (laughs) Uh, They probably were going to be involved in this meeting as well, as they knew full well of it. And by this time, uh, they were having this meeting in Galilee. By this time, Jesus had already appeared to the apostles twice in Jerusalem and did not need to appear to them again exclusively in a faraway place in Galilee. And then, uh, as we think about this, uh, why take them exclusively all the way to Galilee only to come back to the Jerusalem area and then ascend to heaven before them from the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. I mean, why do you need to go all the way to Galilee with the disciples if you've already met with them twice in Jerusalem? They already know. So uh, most believe that very probably, and overwhelming, almost a total consensus of commentators, uh, agree that probably the meeting in view here involved the meeting with over 500 brethren at once, as mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We find there, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, after, he was, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Understand that 85% of Christ's ministry took place in Galilee. And this is where the bulk of his true followers were. 
Now upon his resurrection, Jesus had a special announcement for all of his followers. The whole group was called upon to be at this meeting in Galilee. I mean the central hub of where his ministry essentially took place, most of it. And it makes sense that Jesus would give this great commission, which involved a worldwide mission in Galilee, which was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Because its boundary was connected with Gentile territory, the main place where Gentiles entered in to the land of Israel. Now, Jesus had, in effect, been rejected by Jerusalem, led by its religious leaders. So now the mission took on a worldwide focus involving Gentiles as well as Jews. Yes, the gospel goes first to the Jew, but then also to the Gentile. So it was appropriate that this great commission would be given in Galilee for a number of reasons. Verse 17. So here we go. We have the meeting now. It's in Galilee. And uh, this large crowd has shown up in Galilee. And what happened? Verse 17. <clears throat> when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Now, when the women on Resurrection Sunday met Jesus, Matthew 28, 9 says, they worshipped him. When Doubting Thomas saw the risen Lord, he said, My Lord and my God, which is the language of worship. To worship literally means to bow down before. It indicates submission and allegiance to a higher power. True believers bow before Jesus as our God, Master, and our Savior. As Jesus told the Samaritan woman, God is seeking true worshipers. That's what God wants. To be a true believer is to be a true worshiper. This is the stuff of true faith. I think it's the dividing line between uh, a bogus, mere intellectual assent and being a true believer. Uh, it's with the heart that we believe. And, and in believing, we recognize Jesus for who he is, which is a form of worship. Repeatedly, we find true believers worshiping Jesus. Here again, upon seeing Jesus, they worshiped him. I mean, that's a fitting response. Uh, they saw him and they worshiped. Now remember, Matthew is writing to Jews. And every Jew knew that only God is to be worshiped. The very first commandment was, you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. What do you do with gods? You worship them. No other gods. They all knew that. Every Jew, this was 101 uh, Judaism. When Satan tried to tempt Jesus to worship him, Jesus refuted him with scripture saying, only God is to be worshipped. True believers come to worship Jesus because they now believe in him as the true God. This is a key point in the Gospels. And the resurrection emphatically declared Jesus to be the Son of God who is worthy to be worshipped. Dare I give the reference? Romans chapter 1 verse 4. Subtle. I'm going to Romans. But note it also says, some doubted. But some doubted. What? What's that doing here? Some doubted. That's really an amazing statement. It speaks to the integrity and the transparency of Scripture. 
which tells it like it is without varnishing the facts. I mean, if someone was fabricating this story about the resurrection, would they ever include a detail like this? No. But the Bible tells it like it is, our warts and all. The word doubted is the idea of hesitated. The only other place this exact word is used, used in the New Testament is in Matthew 14, 31, where Peter in the storm took his eyes off Jesus and began to doubt. Even so, Jesus did say that he had a little faith. I mean, rebuking, oh, you have little faith, but acknowledging that he had little, a little faith, even though it was clouded by temporary doubt. So in other words, a person can entertain this sort of doubt and still be a person of faith. Peter certainly was. However, remember that this was a crowd of over 500 people. And most all of these people had not yet seen the risen Christ. And perhaps initially Jesus was at some distance, as the text would seem to imply, although we are not told the details. I was recently at an IFCA conference. There was about 500 people at this conference. I knew a good number of people at this conference. But you know, when we, we were all in this, we all got together this, this big room, 500 people. Uh, we were eating together. And I was like, I was looking across, oh, is that so-and-so? I'm not sure. I had doubts. Uh, you know, maybe that's what we have here. Uh, sometimes from a distance, it's kind of hard. Is this, is this really Jesus? And we've come to meet Jesus. Is this really him uh, as, as he's a little ways in the distance there? Uh, I, I just weren't quite totally sure. Now, those, I think, who had seen Jesus, they worshipped, as we saw. But some who had not seen Jesus yet perhaps had some hesitancy. For some in the crowd, they may have initially had a questioning experience like this. However, it would seem that upon seeing Jesus come closer and addressing them, that they are all shown to be true believers. Paul certainly alluded to this in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, where he, in effect, was appealing to the uniform testimony of these over 500 people whom he refers to collectively as brethren who believe in the risen Lord. So I don't think it's that they were not believers. By the way, the fact that some doubted adds weight to the fact that more than just the 11 disciples were involved here. Jesus had earlier appeared to the 11 disciples and verified himself to them so that they were definitely not doubting the truth of the resurrection at that point. I mean, you had that really kind of monumental, climactic situation with Thomas. But I think after Thomas, uh, there was no more doubting among them whatsoever. In view here was a brief hesitation on the part of some, wondering whether or not uh, this truly was Jesus appearing to them. After all, the whole thing was pretty surreal, right? It's not every day you meet up with somebody who's come back to life from the dead. But then those doubts quickly dissipated as Jesus came close and spoke to them. We pick it up, continuing here, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me. In heaven and on earth. How's that for an introductory statement? Woo! That's something. There's a statement that calls for worship. I think all the doubters, all those who were true believers but had some measure of hesitancy, were at this point in true worship. Certainly the one who has all authority spoke these words with great convincing power and authority. 
The language implies here that Jesus came close to them as he spoke to them. Now, what an amazing, life-changing experience, which they never forgot or got over, as alluded to by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. The all-inclusiveness of this statement is amazing. Appropriate only for one who is sovereign Lord over all. You understand Jesus is making a lordship statement, right? I mean, this is the introductory statement to the over 500. I am Lord over all. All authority, all lordship authority is mine. That's an amazing statement. Notice he was not given some authority, but all authority. Where? In Council Bluffs. Yeah. No, uh, yes, but broader. Uh, in heaven and on earth. In other words, Jesus has all authority in the entire universe. Who but the Lord God Almighty could make such a statement? The answer is no one. The word authority has the idea of delegated power along with the God-ordained right to use it. This is not just the force of power, the Greek word dunamis, but rather another word that denotes the right or authority to use that power. As God, Jesus always shared in God's sovereign authority over all. But now as the second member of the Godhead, he assumed a unique humbling role as he became a member of the human race in the incarnation. God became a man. What an amazing reality as well. Everything about Jesus is an amazing reality. In the incarnation, Jesus set aside the independent use of his divine attributes. And in humble dependence, as a man, he did only the Father's will, depending upon him each step of the way. Now, in this state of humility, he remained fully God, but only expressed his authority as God-ordained in his role of servanthood in relation to the incarnation. Although his deity was veiled in his earthly ministry, yet there were glimmers of it throughout. The Magi showed up. He's a little baby yet. The Magi showed up, and what did they do? They worshipped this new-born baby. In his earthly ministry, he taught as one having authority. I'll send out my notes. I'll give you the references, but for time's sake, I won't. Uh, he healed with authority. He demonstrated authority over sickness and disease and over demons. He demonstrated his authority to forgive sins. He delegated apostolic authority to his chosen apostles. He claimed authority over the Sabbath. Who has authority over the Sabbath? Only God. He has authority in judgment over the resurrection of life and the resurrection to condemnation. Again, the prerogative that belongs only to God. He had authority over his own life, both to lay it down and to take it up again. So even in his incarnation, the authority of Jesus as the God-man shone through. And yet, yet it was somewhat limited 
in his servant role of humiliation. But now, drum roll, in the resurrection, Jesus as a man, as the God-man, has been given unleashed authority over all. He has been exalted above all. God has now put a man, yes, the God-man, in charge over everything. Everything now answers to him. It's all about the lordship of Jesus Christ. God ordained that man rule for him. The first Adam failed miserably in that assignment. Jesus, the second Adam, has succeeded. And Jesus, our brother, our greater brother, as Hebrews calls him, has been made Lord over all. Now, human authority is only in places ordained by God. Paul in Romans chapter 13 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. When Jesus was on trial before Pilate, he tried to act like a big shot, saying, Do you not know, sir, sir, do you not know that I have power to crucify you? And power to release you? Don't you know this? Don't you know who you're talking to? And Jesus responded, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Authority is ultimately given by God according to his sovereign will and purposes. Even the Antichrist who will claim to be God Almighty, will only be able to do what he does because it is granted to him to do so. Everybody does what they do, really, by sovereign permission. We read in Revelation 13, this is of the Antichrist, he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Okay, you got permission to go for 42 months. But here is the thing. All the human authorities are given some authority, but it is very limited in terms of time and scope. But in contrast, the risen Lord has been given absolutely all authority in the whole of heaven and on the whole of earth. All are made to report to him. He is in absolute charge. He is Lord with a capital L. This is what Peter announced. On the day of Pentecost, we get rolling with the church here. He gets up in boldness and preaches. And what does he say? Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is the Messiah who is Lord. Turns out the gospel is a total lordship story. You cannot remove the lordship of Christ from the gospel and have the gospel. Lord and Savior is the gospel. Philippians chapter 2. Where, where is the whole of history going? God's going to make a statement. Here, here's where it's going. God has highly exalted him. That's Jesus. Given him the name which is above every name. He's in the top position overall. 
that at the name of Jesus, the person of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is what God, everybody's going to bow and recognize Jesus for who he is as Lord over all. Now, Jesus is said to be his human name because it was given to him in relation to his birth. It means Savior. More literally, Jesus means God Savior. But this human name, uh, this human, namely Jesus, has in the resurrection been highly exalted. That at the human name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every tongue confess that he is Lord. All will be made to see and recognize that this human, Jesus, has been exalted to the position of being Lord, that is, sovereign master over all. He is the one through whom all of God's authority is mediated. (laughs) Say, okay, God has all authority. How's he channeling that authority? Oh, he's doing it through Jesus. Jesus called this special meeting to announce his resurrected exaltation to this special group of devoted followers. In the resurrection, total victory has been achieved. Jesus has been totally vindicated by God and given total sovereign authority over every realm. Can you imagine the response of this crowd? It had to be overcome with awe and true worship. I mean, if they worshipped him before he made the announcement, what do you think the response was after the announcement? Well, I'm pretty sure to say that crowd was full of true worshipers. Now, there's a lot of talk uh, by politicians. We can stop right there. there. There's a lot of talk by politicians and so forth of the importance of being on the right side of history. Well, history is ultimately his story. That is God's story. And the centerpiece of it all is the risen Lord. To be on the right side of history is to be on the right side of the Lord Jesus, who has total authority over all. Revelation chapter 1. And we get off to a flying start here in the book of Revelation chapter 1, uh, where we read, Jesus, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then a little later in that chapter, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Resurrection. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades, the realm of death. I have the keys of Hades and death. Now, there has never been a meeting like this with such a large crowd of mere mortals who had the unbelievable privilege of meeting with the one who in his resurrection had been given all authority over the entire universe. Imagine if someone had said, well, I'd like to make the meeting, but I'm too busy. Or, yeah, why don't you report back? I don't think it's important enough for me to personally go. Are we even in the place where we're getting the message? Well, you are. But so many are so negligent. 
It doesn't seem that what the risen Christ has to say is too important. They're not even in the place where they get the message. Those who showed up were blessed beyond measure to firsthand get this most important message from the most important person in the world about the most important mission in the world. Here's the point. This statement of Jesus having all authority was not spoken in a vacuum. He didn't just make this statement to cause wonder and awe. No, rather he made the statement to reinforce the commission he was about to give that we commonly call the Great Commission. It is the comprehensive authority of Christ that stands behind the commission to go and make disciples. Now, a few weeks ago, we had evangelism outreach, which we are preparing to do again Tuesday night. Thanks, Vince, for leading our efforts here. And, uh, you know, I wasn't able to go out. Uh, I'll forget where I was, but I was doing something. But anyway, uh, but this lady called a few days afterwards and said, and she began the conversation on the phone by saying, I have a complaint. I love those calls. They're beautiful. They make my day. Anyway, just kidding. But uh, she says, I have a complaint. Is this Southview Bible Church? Yeah, I have a complaint. Well, what's your complaint? She said, there were some people who knocked on our door and they said, we are sinners and we need to be saved. She said, what gives you the right? This was, this was her theme question. She just kept saying, I mean, she must have said this to me 10 times. What gives you the right? She just kept saying, what gives you the right? So you know what I did? Yeah, I took her to Matthew 28. All authority is behind this commission. We have the right to knock on every door in Council Bluffs. Now, it might not be wise in some cases. The Bible does say walk in wisdom. The Bible says don't cast your pearls before swine. So if you find hogs in a house, you might want to not go there. But uh, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, uh, you know, you want to use some wisdom is what I'm saying. But behind the work, this is the point, behind the work of making disciples stands the authority of the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. You, don't, you really don't need permission. I think I need permission to, to maybe share. Now, you need wisdom in certain contexts. Again, you want to be wise. And you want to realize a part of this idea of sharing the truth of Christ involves suffering. You say, I might get in trouble. Yeah, yeah, you're going to get in trouble. All who will live godly will suffer. You, you know they put Jesus Christ on a cross for a reason. And it wasn't just for being nice to everybody. Uh, it wasn't for all the good things he did for everybody. You know why? It was the truth. The world hates the truth. You truth givers, you think the world's going to stand by and say, well, we give you a pass. Good job. We even love what you're doing. No way. They're going to hate you, as Jesus said. We should expect persecution. If we're going to be faithful, we're going to get some persecution. And, you know, I, one of my uh, new friends that I found at the IFCA conference wrote a book, uh, Preparing the Church for Persecution. You know, in America, we haven't been the persecuted church here. It's been the rest of the world. It's coming to us. It's moving in on us. Uh, we see it uh, gradually coming. But there's no higher authority. We need no other authority. The one with all authority said this. 
verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is, again, commonly called the Great Commission. And rightfully so. Grammatically, it is made up of three participles and one main verb that is the central command. Now, to keep this really simple, participles are descriptive words which relate to the main verb. I already lost you, didn't I? Often, participles end in ing, so they're kind of descriptive words with ing. It's more than that, but anyway. uh, Note on the overhead here, go, literally going, participle. And then we have the main verb, make disciples. Uh, One word in the Greek, that's the main verb, that's the main idea here, make disciples. This is is what Jesus wants, the one who has all authority, make disciples. And then another participle, baptizing, and another participle, teaching. What I want you to see is that the main verb that drives the entire commission is that of making disciples. Make disciples is one command around which the entire mandate is focused. Go therefore means in light of Christ having all authority, he therefore instructs us to go and make disciples. It is Christ's authority behind it that drives this great commission. Now, the first participle translated as go is perhaps best understood as as you are going, which assumes that Christ's followers will be going. You are going, right? I mean, in a few minutes, I'm going to say amen and you're going to go. (laughs) Right? You, You are on the way to somewhere. You are going. Uh, Some of you are going to move far away. Some of you are going to maybe move to Europe. I don't know where you're going, but as you are going, wherever you are going, make disciples. As you are going assumes that Christ's followers will be going. That's the same sense, by the way, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judas, Marion, to the end of the earth. No, Jesus didn't say, uh, you receive the Spirit of power. And maybe, maybe. No, he said, you will be. You shall be witnesses. Thus, the expectation is that we will be going and we shall be his witnesses wherever we find ourselves. This is a given expectation. It is expected that the church will be going to the world. The sense is not that the world show up at our door. You know, I'm really not preaching to the unbelievers here this morning. There's always a message for them. But this is an equipping session, right? My job is to equip you with the truth. And then, you know, we ought to maybe put a little sign out here. You are now entering into your mission field. You are to be going and doing. The world doesn't come to us. We go to the world. The church is an edifying context, an equipping context. But our mission field is out there. We are to be going to them. They are not commanded to come to us. I don't see anywhere you say, well, the unbelievers are commanded to go to church. Really? I expect them to be sleeping this morning. And you need to dock on their door and wake them up this afternoon. Just kidding. Once you're in the family, uh, then you are commanded to not forsake the assembly. 
But that's for those who are already believers. Well, as we are on our pilgrim journey, wherever that finds us as believers, we are to be busy about the Father's business, about the business of Jesus in making disciples of all the nations. This is our singular great mission in life. We are on a mission, and that mission is singularly to make disciples. Make disciples suggests a process, a process of intentional outreach. Jesus described it in terms of being fishers of men. Now, I, I know some fishermen in my life, and some of these people get addicted, right? They get addicted so bad they go fishing on Sunday morning. I mean, some of these people are addicted. They have problems. I'm just teasing now. But uh, being a fisher of men is intentional. When you go fishing, you, you, you make certain preparations, right? You get the bait, and, and you know, you've got a rod and a reel, and maybe you have a boat. You, you do certain things to get ready. The word disciple has been called a beautiful combination word, and it is. It's this combination, believer, follower, learner. Make disciples, make believers, followers, learners. That combination. Now, we often talk about Christians as being believers. Sometimes we've so simplified the scriptures that we miss the point. Certainly is true that Christians are believers. And that is right and biblical. But there is a right kind of faith and a bogus kind of faith. Jesus described a true saving kind of faith as a faith that follows him. I know, you want me to give a reference. So I will. John chapter 10. But you do not believe. Here's the problem, he says to these Jews. You don't believe. And why don't you believe? Because you're not my sheep. As I said to you, here's what defines true belief. Here's what defines true sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. True faith follows Christ. And it is they who have eternal life. Now, we don't receive eternal life by following. But if we have a true faith, we will follow. Not perfectly, but certainly. Following is the fruit of true faith. Note the change here, by the way. Earlier in Christ's ministry, the disciples were told to not go to the Gentiles, but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is only to the Jews. But in contrast, this new commission now has all the nations in view. You see, Israel in the Old Testament had an inward focus. They were not commanded to go to the world. Rather, the world was to look inward at Israel and see the living God on display. But now the focus is outward. Go. Now we are told to go to the world. So let me diagram it for you. Uh, see, this is the Old Testament. The whole world's looking in and seeing the living God on display in relationship to Israel. That, that, that's, the, that's the plan. That's the emphasis. But now it's a different perspective. Now from, we start in Jerusalem, but then it goes out to the furthest ends of, of the earth. A, a different paradigm that we have in the Old Testament. 
And as we are going, the first thing we are to do is make a disciple. As seen in the book of Acts, this means we share the gospel. That, that's how you do it. You share the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. That, that reference is found in, uh, oh yeah, Romans. Romans? Yeah, Romans. Uh, we work with people in seeking to share with them the truth of Jesus Christ. And when they respond in faith, we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Note, he did not say to circumcise disciples, but rather to baptize them. This signifies a break with the old system under Judaism, under the lawish system. The church is a whole new thing, not to be confused with Israel. What Jesus said was followed to the letter in the book of Acts. When people responded in faith to the message, they were immediately baptized. There is no exception to this pattern in the New Testament scriptures. In the New Testament church age, as recorded in the book of Acts, which is a, a history of the first 30 years of the, of the church, there is no example of an unbaptized believer. I mean, when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, the people were cut to the heart, it says, and they said, what should we do? And Peter said, oh, just sit over there and wait for the rapture. No, no, he didn't say that. He said, repent and be baptized. A clear indication of true faith and repentance is that they were immediately baptized. 3,000 souls on that day. Well, when the gospel went to the Gentiles, upon hearing the message, they believed and they spoke in tongues, showing that they had to receive the Spirit exactly as the Jews did five years earlier. Peter then commanded them to be baptized. He didn't say, I'd like to make a little suggestion. I hope it's not offensive to any of you. No, he commanded them to be baptized. This is the consistent pattern in the book of Acts as they carried out the Great Commission precisely as instructed by Christ. The commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, as carried out in the book of Acts, shows that immediately upon conversion, people were considered to be disciples. And on that basis, they were immediately baptized. By the way, this forever ends the argument as to whether or not a believer is also a disciple. I mean, if you say you can be a believer without being a disciple, you have a major problem with the Great Commission. Jesus said to baptize disciples. And believers without exception in Acts were immediately baptized, showing they were immediately considered to be disciples. In fact, getting baptized is one of the first evidences that one has become a true disciple. And of course, you can fake anything, but a true believer follows. And the first act of following is getting baptized. The Bible talks about the obedience of faith. We are not saved by the obedience of works, including that of baptism. But we are saved by the obedience of faith. The response of faith is itself a response of obedience. But then if it is real, it is expected that one will obey the master whom they have come to believe in, starting with his command to be baptized. In Acts chapter 16, it says, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us, she was a seller of purple, who worshipped God, still ignorantly. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Which is a way of saying she came to believe. She aligned with it. And when she and her household were baptized, there you go. Obviously, she was instructed, okay, yeah, you're heeding the things. Here's the next step. 
She and her household were baptized. After, uh, and when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now, how do you know whether a person has made a saving faith response? Well, ultimately, only God knows the heart. But we do see the outward fruits. And the fruit of saving faith is obedience. When Lydia responded positively to the message Paul preached, she showed it by being baptized. Then she said to Paul, if you have judged me to be faithful, well, how how could he know? I mean, she just became a believer. The only way he could know is by her initial act of obedience in getting baptized. That's how she showed herself to be faithful. Nelson's study Bible, it was assumed that when a person trusted in the Lord Jesus, he or she would be baptized. Now, the word baptized literally means to immerse or to dip under. It also has a secondary meaning, which means to dip into dye. With the metaphorical idea of permanent identification. Now, the King James translators, they really stumbled they really at one point. You know, uh, I, we got these King James only people sometimes. And I like to take them back to the very original. You know, the original King James really messed up. Because they made a little mistake in the trans, in the in the bringing it in. It said back in the Old Testament, "Thou shalt commit adultery." I mean, are you really willing to go with the original King James? Uh, they didn't go with it very long. I mean, they changed it immediately, but they made some mistakes. Uh, and by the way, I love the King James. I memorized everything. I memorized most of the New Testament out, out of the King James. So don't, I'm, I love the King James. But uh, the Church of England. Uh, under the context of the, new, uh, the King James translators, uh, they worked in the context of the Church of England, and uh, they practiced sprinkling as the mode of baptism. And uh, so when they came to this Greek word, baptisma, baptizo, uh, well, what are we going to do with this word? Uh, they didn't want to translate it. Because to translate it would be in, put them in big trouble with the Church of England. So they transliterated it, which then stuck in terms of the English translations from there ever after, amen and amen, right up to where we live. Really, if this was translated, it would read like this. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Immersing, immersing. That's what the word means. Immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, chose this precise word. Man, I wish I had more than seven minutes to go through seven pages or five, whatever it is. So I'm going to really cut to the chase. I will send you out all my notes, but uh, anyway. Uh, In our culture, I think we often take baptism too lightly. It's often seen as kind of a ritual. We kind of go through it, but it doesn't have great significance. Throughout history, in most cultures, it has been seen, however, as signifying radical conversion, as a person being sold out to Jesus Christ. The word baptized really signifies a solemn reality. It really uh, reflects complete identification with Jesus Christ for who he is shown to be. And with the entire Trinity, I think you can make two great mistakes when concerning baptism. On, on one hand, we can see it as a sacrament which confers saving grace. 
That's a fatal error. However, one can also see it as insignificant since it does not save a person. Paul makes a clear distinction between the gospel by which we are saved when we believe and that of baptism which follows. Romans 1.16, Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Everyone who believes, doesn't say anything about baptism. And then in 1 Corinthians 1.17, he makes a clear distinction between the gospel and baptism. Seeing Christ did not send me to baptize, that's one thing, an entirely different thing. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. The gospel is the power of God's salvation. It's the message you believe. You just believe it and you're saved. So the gospel is the message of who Christ is and what he has done to secure salvation. It's all about Jesus. Baptism, then, is an outward testimony of faith, openly identifying with the truth of it. Okay. Notice, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three members of the triune Godhead are put on the same level here. Holman Christian Study Bible, Matthew's language shows a clear understanding of Jesus' nature and identity as God required before baptism. Notice Jesus said baptizing them in the name, singular. That's that's the oneness of God, in the name. But then also uh, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three, the Trinity, the concept of the Trinity. A couple of quotes here to wrap this up here. New Schofield Reference Bible, the Trinity of God is confessedly a great mystery, something wholly beyond the possibility of complete explanation. But we can guard against error by holding fast to the facts of divine revelation that with respect to his being or essence, God is one. Number two, with respect to his personality, God is three. And three, we must neither divide the essence nor confuse the persons. Great statement. Here's another one. This is from Geisler and Howie. Uh, God is one in essence, but three persons. This is a mystery, but not a contradiction. It would be contradictory to say that God was only one person, but also three persons. Or that God is only one nature, but that he also had three natures. But to declare, as Orthodox Christians do, that God is one essence, eternally revealed in three distinct persons, is not a contradiction. D.A. Carson says... The faith to be proclaimed was, in some sense, Trinitarian from the beginning. Indeed, it was. Verse 20. We have to go there. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. We are not done. I remember early in my ministry, I baptized somebody, and I never saw them again. Fail, 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 fail. It's still failing, as far as I know. You know, it's not the end. You don't say, well, now you're baptized. Uh, the Lord be with you. Be warmed and filled and go on your way, whatever. No. Uh, we are to continue to teach them. And not just head knowledge. We are to teach them that they need to obey. Observe all things that I have commanded. What's this? We have Christ's ministry, what he taught us, the gospels. But then by extension, he gave the rest of what he wanted to say in terms of New Testament revelation through his apostles. And so we are to teach the whole of what Christ... And notice the emphasis here is on what I have commanded you. Yes, we need the Old Testament scriptures. It's all profitable. But we need to emphasize what Christ taught us under the system of grace. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The lifelong task. 
I just want to touch on for a second. What a wonderful promise that he is with us to the end of the age, which shows this is application for all of God's children, all down through the whole age until he comes again. The lifelong task of every true believer is to study Christ, to study his truth, to learn. And then to the end that we might pass it on to others. We don't face this daunting task of making disciples the world over alone. Christ is with us. Well, as we see the day of Christ's coming, approaching, much of the professing church seems to have lost sight of our mission. Many seemingly think that our mission is to promote fellowship. And you like fellowship, right? Yeah, we're we're playing a fellowship meal. I plan to be there. After all, the church is a great place to hang out until the rapture, right? Yeah, 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 it is. I'd like to think so. Uh, Some think the mission of the church is social programs. Some think the mission of the church is to promote praise and worship. Now, all of these things, they have their place. And indeed, an important place, if properly understood. But they are not the essential mission of the church. I mean, if the mission of the church is fellowship, we might as well go to heaven instantly because fellowship there will be perfect. If the mission is meeting social needs, we might as well go straight to heaven where no one will ever have a need again. If the mission is more perfect praise and worship, then what are we doing here? Because perfect praise and worship will be in heaven. This is not why Christ left us here in terms of the mission. This is not what the Great Commission is all about. Don't get me wrong. All important things. But all of these objectives can be better accomplished in heaven. There's only one thing we won't do better in heaven than we are currently doing on earth. And you know what that is? Making disciples. You know, I I think I can say this with absolute assurance. Not a single disciple will be made in heaven. I mean, if you want to make disciples, you better get with it right here and now. You can't do it in heaven. This is our great work. This is our great mission. This is what Christ told us to do. Who has all authority in heaven. This is the big idea. What are we doing about it? So I know you've got all, all authority, but I'm just going to sit over here. What do you think you're going to say when you meet Jesus? I didn't get it. You know, for many... The Great Commission is going to be the Great Omission. I don't want to give an account for the Great Omission. I want to be faithful to the Great Commission. Let's stand. Have our closings on.
to one of his elders. We'll be up front. If we can help you as far as the gospel, knowing for sure you have eternal life, we'd love to share with you. If you need to be baptized, come and talk with us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you haven't been baptized. Did I make it clear? Yeah, you should be. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a privilege I've had to teach all the way through the gospel of Matthew Uh, climaxing on the death and resurrection of Christ, and now the commission, the great commission, to go and share with everyone. Everyone needs this. Everyone needs to know. They need to become followers, believing followers. Lord, help us to be faithful in this. Help me to be faithful in this. Lord, it's so easy for me sometimes to be cowardly in certain contexts. I want to be bold, yet we want to be wise. Uh, give us that, that combination of boldness and wisdom. Lord, have your way in every heart and every life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.